20 minutes a day, 365 days a year. This is the Pack a Day Podcast. Welcome back to another episode of the Pack a Day Podcast. You can get all your Pack a Day updates by following us on Twitter at Pack a Day Podcast. And remember, you can always subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, or Spotify. And, of course, you can check us out over at CheeseheadTV.com. I'm Kyle Fellows, and I am back, as always, with Andrew Mertig. Andrew, uh, welcome. It is good to be back for another Friday edition of the podcast. We're back. I don't know. I don't know what's going on, Kyle. It's the middle of July. It's the off-season, man. It's super hot in Wisconsin. And uh, yeah, we're we're getting excited about potentially what is football this year. Yeah, yeah, we are in the middle of a project right now uh, to get to know every team on the Packers 2020 schedule. We wanted to take a look at what each of these 2020 opponents has done over the course of the offseason to get better. So we're looking at drafts, free agency moves, coaching changes, Whatever, anything that we can to gain a clearer picture of these teams that Green Bay will face this coming season. We've covered each of the Packers division rivals. Last week was kind of crazy, and we covered three teams in one show uh, to break down the Saints, the Bucks, and the Falcons. Uh, but this week, we are back for two more of the Packers 2020 opponents. Today, we've got the Houston Texans and the San Francisco 49ers. Yeah, and you'd think that the schedule would get a little bit easier for the Packers. Last week gave me a headache covering New Orleans, Tampa, and Atlanta, uh, which are going to be three very tough matchups. But then you see the Packers bounce back, and the Texans were a playoff team last year. And, of course, we know the problems that the Packers had with the 49ers. So uh, continuing to to be difficult uh, games in the, in the first half of the schedule for Green Bay in 2020. Um, and the Texans came out in in the pre-drafts period and made some uh, noteworthy, newsworthy moves. I, I, I think controversial is probably going to be um, a really optimistic way to look about it. But um, if, if you look at the moves that they strictly made in signings and, um, you know, players leaving, what you find is sort of a, a big exodus of talent you you have the the texans re-signing quarterback aj mccarran their backup uh, and their kicker kaimi fairbairn and that's kind of uh it for bringing back players uh they went out in free agency and they signed wide receiver randall cobb i think we know a little bit about him uh quarterback vernon hargraves the third um and safety eric murray all fine players um but if you look at what they lost you see, you know, quarterback slash whatever he wants to play, uh, Joe Webb, uh, cornerback Jonathan Joseph, cornerback Bradley Roby, running back Carlos Hyde, defensive lineman DJ Reader, edge Barkevius Mingo, safety Mike Adams retired. Uh, they they lose running back Lamar Miller, who feels like he's been in the NFL for like 37 years. Uh, and then they cut safety to Sean Gibson. That is a lot of talent to lose. And then you go into the trade market. And obviously the big noteworthy thing that Houston did this offseason was trading DeAndre Hopkins to the Arizona Cardinals for running back David Johnson in the second round pick. Uh, a lot was made of that because not only did they get rid of Hopkins for less than what you would think an elite receiver like DeAndre Hopkins would be worth, but they also bring back this 
what looks like a really bad contract in running back David Johnson. Um, and then they go out and they, they send a second round pick to the Los Angeles Rams to bring in wide receiver Brandon Cooks, who is a fine player, uh, but who does seem to be grossly overpaid uh, for what his production has been and certainly isn't at the level of DeAndre Hopkins. Yeah, I think you could get excited about the way that the Texans retooled their offense if DeAndre Hopkins was still in the fold. If they still had him paired with guys like David Johnson and Brandon Cooks, that could have been a really special and explosive offense. Um, Obviously, that's an alternate universe that we're talking about there. And we'll get into our full reactions of this Texans offense um, and the offseason in general in just a minute. Uh, But let's check out their draft class to see if they were able to get any talent in the doors to kind of mask what Andrew has said is really a mass exodus and a huge turnover on this roster. So right out of the gate with the draft, we have to remember Laramie Tunsil is essentially the Texans' first-round pick. They sent that selection to Miami to get Tunsil. Uh, in round two, on uh, 40 overall, Ross Blacklock was their selection, the defensive tackle out of TCU. Uh, the third round, they took Jonathan Grenard, uh, the linebacker from Florida. Uh, round four, Charlie Heck, the offensive tackle, North Carolina. Another fourth-round pick this year, John Reed, cornerback from Penn State. And round five, Isaiah Coulter, the wide receiver from Rhode Island. So this is a top-heavy class for me. I love the Blacklock pick at 40 overall. I would have been okay if the Packers had taken Blacklock at 30. Uh, But then, for me, this class doesn't do much for me after that. I I know a lot of people really like Grenard, but there's not much for me to get excited about here. I, I... If you take Tunsil into consideration, I think you feel good about the potential impact that you have here in the first two rounds if you count him as your first. But this is not a very deep class for me. Yeah, and it's fine to include Laramie Tunsil as your first round pick, but you also have to realize that the Texans had to pay him a fortune. And I do mean had to because of the draft capital that they gave up to get Tunsil, they could not let that guy walk. Uh, And so he became obviously a very, very expensive piece of this team. So instead of, um, you know, potentially addressing tackle last year by giving up a mid-round pick, moving up one selection, and then getting the the tackle that the Philadelphia Eagles ended up drafting. Can you help me with my my name recognition Uh... here? No. No. <laughs> I'll look it up. I, I, I can picture him in my mind, and I, I just it can't come up with the name. Um, and I, yeah, yeah. Uh, let your producer look it up. But yes. um, if, if they had done that, instead of drafting Titus Howard, who, in fairness, looked really good at guard at times last year, but they way overdrafted him, and now they're stuck with having to go out and trade for Laramie Tunsil and then having to pay for him. Um, and that's something that's going to cost you a long term. If, if, if you look at that as your first-round pick, that's fine. But, uh, again, there's some salary cap impact implications that are going to hurt you um, in in that process. I, I really liked the pick of Ross Blacklock. I thought he was a good value at 40. I think that's kind of right in the area of, you know, maybe somewhere between 25 and, and 45 um, that you'd have him pegged. I actually had him as my number two ranked defensive lineman, but I liked him a little bit better than Javon Kinlaw simply because I loved that combination of quickness and power. And I think he can be a little bit more versatile than some of the other defensive linemen that are in this class that might be a little bit uh, pigeonholed into one um, of the run or pass. Uh, Grenard, uh, my notes on him, he's a long dude. He's really good in 
pressing tackles. Uh, so he's going to be good at setting the edge against the run, moving offensive linemen in pass situations. But he's not very twitchy, and he's a little stiff in pass rushing. Um, and so I thought he was really one-dimensional as a uh, better against the run edge and how much value do those players really have in the NFL? Um, that's going to be interesting. Uh, for Charlie Heck, I did look at him as well, and he's a huge dude. Decent movement skills. Um, he's going to struggle with some counter moves. His balance is okay, uh, which you would expect. A, a guy as big as him is going to struggle a little bit with the bend um, and also the balance. He definitely needs to get stronger for the NFL, which which is a little bit alarming when, when you have a guy that, that is that massive. Um, but he was solid uh, at, at North Carolina in the run game. There's some injury concerns there with him as well. So I expected him to slide a little bit farther than the fourth round. But if you look at him as a developmental tackle and, and a good fit, then you know I have no problem with them taking him in the fourth. And I don't really have a lot to mention with, with the remainder of their draft. So my producer was gracious enough to look that up for us as you were talking. And it is uh, Washington State's Andre Dillard was Andre the Dillard. Philadelphia, Philadelphia selection that they could have moved up for. Obviously, you mentioned settling for Titus Howard. So a lot's going to be. Last week, know. I couldn't think of Elvin Kamara's name. But and last week, week, I came through for you. So <laughs> you, did, you did. And this week, I can't think of Andre Dillard's name. This is getting embarrassing for me. But it is the offseason, so I think people will be forgiving. Yeah, but a lot is going to weigh on this. I mean, they've, they've made the move for Tunsil. They took Titus Howard. So how those moves work out is going to go a long way in how this offense progresses and the success that they have. So something big to watch there with those guys. But um, let's get into this. Did this team find a way to get better this offseason, or is this a worse roster than it was? You mentioned this is a 2019 playoff team. So is this that team? Is this a worse team, or did they uh, become serious contenders this year? It would be really hard for me to imagine that the Texans got better this offseason. You know, they they just keep drafting defense. And I think Blacklock and Grenard, even though I don't really like Grenard, um, they add to that continued commitment to the front seven. It seems like the Texans are drafting pretty heavily defensively um, every single year. Um, but, you know, then you, you, you look at what are the positives of their defense. J.J. Watt, he gets another year older. He's been having injury concerns as of late. Uh, Whitney Merciless is another year older. Um, their secondary got a lot worse. They lost Jonathan Joseph, Bradley Roby, Mike Adams to Sean Gibson. That's a lot to replace in one offseason. Um, I, I do think their offensive line may actually be better this year um, because you're going to rely on the developments of Titus Howard and Max Sharping. You know Laramie Tunsil's really good. Uh, Nick Martin and Zach Fulton quietly are two really good young interior players. And so I think through development, you could see a better offensive line product. But you lose Hopkins. That's obviously bad. Um, you could see Cooks and Cobb actually maybe replace that production. Um, I'm not sure, but uh, you're certainly not going to have the guy that the, uh, an opposing defense has to um, you know, base their entire scheme around. And so from a Packers perspective, that's good because you're, you're not necessarily going to have to tell Kevin King or uh, Jair Alexander to shadow Hopkins wherever he goes. Um, so I think that makes you a more defensible team. Um, I do think Deshaun Watson has the ability to take another step in his game, become really like 
an MVP candidate. I, I know he was sort of there last year, but I, I think, you know, he could make that leap into the upper echelon of quarterbacks and really carry this team, even though I think the talent around him may have gotten a little bit worse, um, especially defensively. So, so what did you think, Kyle? Okay, so you were a little bit more gracious than I'm going to be here. And I think we do a pretty good job as we go through this exercise trying to be pretty neutral about our opinions and really be honest about did these teams get better or worse. But we talked about the value of the running back position on this show numerous times. And I think I value the position a little bit more than you just based on what I'm probably willing to give up for impactful running backs, especially running backs who give you that dual value as a serious threat as a receiver. But you can't tell me that you actually believe that an infusion of David Johnson, even in his best version of himself, is better for your team than DeAndre Hopkins. I know they had the second round pick thrown in there as well and those kinds of things. But you simply cannot convince me that this is true, that he helps this team in a way that's more impactful than DeAndre Hopkins. And this team filled its receiving core with complementary pieces, Brandon Cooks is a complimentary piece. Randall Cobb is a great player, but a complimentary piece. You've replaced a clear top three receiver in the league with complimentary receivers. And fan bases make jokes about their franchise wasting their quarterback's prime. We've heard the complaints about how Ted Thompson wasted Rodgers' prime. And all of that, in my opinion, is overblown and overly critical. But my goodness, if there is a case to be made for wasting the prime years of a quarterback, it has to be the Houston Texans and Deshaun Watson. Whether it's the construction of the offensive line or the jettisoning of one of the best wide receivers in the game, it is hard to imagine how a team could do more to hinder the play of their star quarterback and really completely blow the opportunity to win on that rookie quarterback contract. I know that I'm being really hard on this franchise and maybe maybe I'm being a little bit unfair because you point out some of the good things that they did. But you look at the trade that this team made, the trades, plural, the poor compensation that they received for those trades, the head scratching draft classes from the last several seasons. And it really makes you think that this may be one of the worst managed teams in the league. And I don't think that they got better or did anything to convince me otherwise this offseason. And you know, what? it's it's absolutely crazy for me to think that Brian Gutekinds was very close to being the GM of this Houston team. He was down there for an interview when he got the call from the Packers and that offer. Um, And so I obviously think that that would have been very, very interesting if that would have worked out. Uh, Brian Gutekinds working with Bill O'Brien. But you have to think that this is a team that is in a much better spot if they were able to close the deal with Goody a few years back. Um, we've seen them kind of struggle uh, with the draft and with their, their roster construction. So it's just interesting to consider how things could have been so different. And really, this is a playoff team. We know that. Uh, but my goodness, Deshaun Watson carrying a lot of this and now without his best wide receiver. It's just hard for me to see that. And I'm sure for him to see that as a franchise quarterback and what could have been uh, this coming season. And I, I think, you know, this is a, a good cautionary tale that uh, teams should have a general manager uh, and not rely on their head coach to be making moves um, when they're not necessarily qualified to do that, right? Like, we, we don't see that structure where the head coach is the GM very often in the NFL anymore. It works for Bill Belichick, but 
Um, you know, how much of that is Tom Brady and how much of that is the people that he's surrounding himself with. Um, certainly, you know, that may be the exception of the rule. And I understand that Bill O'Brien is a Belichick protege, but it just it doesn't seem to be working. But let me throw one situation out there for you. Dude. I'm not saying that that I believe this, but I've I've sort of heard this argument. Maybe maybe this comparison hasn't been made, but um, you know Brett Favre early in his career was very successful. But one of his criticisms was he locked in on Sterling Sharp too much, right? And then the very unfortunate injury um, to Sterling Sharp, and and a lot of people actually credited that for for forcing Favre to read the field better um, and get more comfortable with his other receivers. Do you think that there was some theory within the Texans organization that Watson was just too locked in that DeAndre Hopkins? Man, um, I mean, I, I totally see what you're saying. It's really interesting because it's not like Cobb and Cooks are bad receivers. I mean, there's a lot of talent on this team. Um, it's just so hard for me when you have, I mean, if you can imagine like, you know, Devontae Adams, like, I mean, People have been critical of you can talk about the Packers offense last year and how when Devontae Adams went down, it really forced that offense to be um, more diverse and spreading the ball around and those kinds of things. But I don't think that overall you ever make that argument that your best player coming off the field or going to another organization is good for your offense. And so for me, it's just that that's what it comes down to. But what you're saying here is really interesting in that like Cooks does something very different than what. DeAndre Hopkins can do the speed that he brings opens things up and maybe they do want to run a little bit different kind of an offense and and getting the ball to uh, downfield the cooks or quick you know in the interme- intermediate areas to someone like Randall Cobb this could be a great offense for Cobb if cooks is able to draw a lot of deep coverage and just get him into space and, and do some nice things underneath so I mean you could say that and it could be great for his development um, man, it would have been nice to be able to include him in that plan, DeAndre Hopkins, that is, and, and what that could have been for this team. But, man, it's an interesting to, to definitely consider. Just to clarify, I don't buy that at all. I'm just presenting <laughs> it as, as a potential argument. Um, your team is always going to be better with DeAndre Hopkins, period. And if your young quarterback can't figure out how to read the field, then you need to teach him to do that and not just lock in on his one receiver. But I I think you brought up an interesting point. Brandon Cooks is a field stretcher. So is the guy on the other side, Will Fuller, um, Mm, who we didn't talk about at all. And now you have Cobb and potentially David Johnson, if healthy, working that underneath. Um, You know, that that could be a a really um, good offense. And I have no doubt about it. I think their offensive line is going to be really good. And I think their their uh, weapons around uh, Watson can be good enough to make this a very serious threat of an offensive team. I just think their defense is going to struggle, especially in the secondary. And that that's a that's a dangerous proposition in the AFC where uh, you're probably going to run into the Chiefs. And Phillip Rivers, I mean, he's going to take that division by storm, right? I mean, that's... that's Until his arm falls off in week eight. But that sounds like a conversation yeah. for next week. Yeah, that sounds good. We'll, we'll save that one. But, okay, that's been fun. Um, let's move on. Let's, let's jump right in here to um, a team that's a little bit harder to be critical of their roster because it's good. Uh, the 49ers. Let's talk about the San Francisco 49ers. Can let's we start- not? Can we not? That's what we wanted to do all last year. Just not talk about the 49ers. Um, 
Let's talk about their free agency moves and, and their offseason there. Uh, they didn't make a ton of splashes as far as additions this offseason. They did a lot to keep their own guys and fill the vacancies left by their other players, but not a lot of obvious upgrades or big money additions in free agency. They did add wide receiver Travis Benjamin and offensive lineman Tom Compton, as well as defensive end Kerry Hyder as free agents, all on one-year deals there. Uh, but as I said, their biggest moves were keeping their own. They signed Eric Armstead to a five-year, $85 million contract extension through 2024. So obviously that contract had implications in other places in the roster. Uh, defensive back Jimmy Ward earned a new three-year deal as well that pays him an average of $9.5 million per season. They also re-signed corners Dante Johnson and Jason Verrett to short-term deals. But the losses do stack up for this San Francisco team. A wide receiver, Emmanuel Sanders, joined the Saints. Uh, they lost Joe Staley to retirement. They released guard Mike Person, who later retired as well. Uh, but several players left this team via trade, too. Uh, Mike, uh, not Mike, Matt Breida was traded to Miami for a fifth-round pick. Uh, Marquise Goodwin was traded to Philadelphia for a sixth. And then, of course, the big one, uh, defensive lineman DeForest Buckner leaves the West Coast for the Midwest. And uh, the 49ers were able to collect the 13th overall pick for Buckner in a deal that landed him in Indianapolis with the Colts. Obviously, the losses on the defensive line, um, you know, that's going to be a big thing to consider. The offensive line, also a big need that was an opening that's, that's going to has been created. But John Lynch was able to acquire seven-time Pro Bowl tackle Trent Williams from the Washington Red Tails. Uh, they gave up a fifth-rounder this year, but also a third-rounder in 2021 to make that deal possible. So I'm sure San Francisco and their fans feel a little bit more at ease with the addition of Trent Williams. But the bleeding hasn't exactly stopped. Just recently, we just got word that Raheem Mostert has requested his trade. And so uh, he's not excited about his contract or the role that his compensation suggests that he has with this team moving forward. And so I think most Packers fans are hoping that Mostert gets his wish and finds a new home somewhere in the AFC far away from the NFC North. So uh, a little bit of a shakeup here for the 49ers, some new holes to fill. And so, Andrew, uh, I'm curious here, you're up. Uh, did they do anything in the draft to effectively fill those holes? Yeah, and when when we talked about the Vikings, we talked about how they had 15 picks in the draft. And, and obviously that means that there's going to be some other teams around the league who don't have as many picks. And we happen to hit on two of them this week. Um, and the 49ers only had five draft selections. Um, they did have that uh, first round, 14th overall, and they got defensive lineman Javon Kinlaw from South Carolina, which made a ton of sense. Um you know, obviously that's the pick that they get for Armstead and they're just going to plug in the new guy. Um, or did I say Armstead? I meant Buckner. <laughs> why, why do the 49ers have to have two defensive tackles it's from Oregon? Crazy. And I get them confused all the time. Um, so anyways, Javon Kinlaw, uh, my notes on him uh, after watching tape that he is just really a penetrator at his core, a fantastic first step, uses great power in his hands to disrupt blockers. He's a really fluid athlete, good effort, suffers from the same issues that many one gap penetrators do. He gets up field at all costs and get, can get caught with traps and misdirections. He can struggle to handle double teams because he needs to refine his hand technique, refine his hand technique, I should say. Um, and so 
Yeah, those are issues. And and that's actually why I had him as defensive lineman three behind Blacklock is because I thought he was going to be a little bit more limited early in his career. Well, guess what? If you are good at or great at one thing, you can fit in with the San Francisco defensive line because there are other guys who are going to cover your butt when you're doing that one good thing. And so they add just another scary pass rusher into the mix. Um, at 25 overall, uh, he broke a lot of our hearts, or I should say John Lynch, the GM, broke a lot of our hearts by drafting wide receiver Brandon Ayuk from Arizona State, who is somebody I was absolutely infatuated with. He is really athletic. His long speed shows up, and he has really good short area quickness with the ball in his hands. He's a threat to break off a big play all the time. Also, a really good kick and punt returner like San Francisco really needed to add that dimension to their team. Uh, he definitely needed refinement and route running, often too reliant on quickness instead of deceiving the defender. He can struggle with physicality from a defensive back. I was actually surprised with how good, good of a hands catcher he is. Um, very reliable with his hands uh, when he has space, but sometimes in contested situations, he'll um, try to body catch a little bit too much. He finishes runs with some physicality. He's not afraid to block at all. Um, you know, sometimes he, he looks lost in blocking, and that's something he's going to have to clean up to get on the field for San Francisco, who definitely expect their wide receivers to be physical. Um, so, I, I certainly really like their their two first-round picks. Um, then they didn't pick again until the fifth. They get offensive lineman Colton McKivitz from West Virginia. In the sixth, they get tight end Charlie Warner from Georgia. And in the seventh, they get wide receiver Jawan Jennings from Tennessee. Yeah, Kinlaw has all the tools in the world, as you said. And with some good NFL coaching, that technique should catch up with that raw ability, and that is scary. He should be a stud in this league for a long time. And so, uh, no secret, along with you, I was a really big fan of Ayuk, and I really liked him for Green Bay there. So that perk pick did hurt, just like you said, um, when it was made in April. I think the 49ers got some good players, but even more importantly, I think they got players who fit their needs, and Ayuk is perfect for Kyle Shanahan. And so, you hate to see that. Um, it's, it's a perfect match there. So, uh, good for Ayuk, bad for the Packers. But uh, let's let's talk about this team. Uh, this one's a little bit more interesting to me. Did this team get better or worse this offseason, Andrew? All right. So I'm not going to directly answer the question right away. Um, but one of the things that I, I, I always think about is we as fans get really worked up about opposing teams because we tend to think, like, this is a good team. They seem pretty young on the surface. They're going to be good forever and it's always going to be a problem for the Packers. I just think as fans, sometimes we get wrapped up in thinking that teams have much longer windows than they really do. Um, and you think back to that Colin Kaepernick, Frank Gore, Patrick Willis, Navarro Bowman, 49ers team that just seemed like they were a juggernaut. They go to the Super Bowl and then, you know, they, they look like they're going to be good for a really long time and the wheels just fell off, right? Like you have some early retirements, you have some injury problems, you have, um, you know, some some different things that, that caused that team to sort of fall apart very quickly. Um, and they part of it was they had a bunch of drafts where they just really swung for the fences and missed. They, they kept drafting these guys that maybe had first round grades and then dealt with a catastrophic injury and they tried to pick them up in the second or third round and they just never really panned out. Um, it cut away at the depth of the team. Their players got really expensive really fast and that really shortened their window. And this team um, is going to quickly become very expensive. You already talked about some of the contracts they had to hand out this offseason. Um, that's going to start to chew away at their depth. Now, 
All of this being said, if we're just looking at the 49ers for 2020, I expect them to be really, really good. One of the top teams in the NFC. But I don't actually think that they got better. And it, it would be really hard for me to say that they did. Kinlaw might be really good, but there's no way to expect him to step in and replace Buckner immediately. Ayuk might be really good, but you cannot expect him to step in and just beat Emmanuel Sanders. Um, Debo Samuel already got hurt. We haven't talked about that yet, but he's going to miss some time, a chunk at the beginning of the season for sure. And who knows how, how that's going to affect him when he comes back. And you really can't expect San Francisco to be as healthy as they were last year. So um, did they get better? No, I don't believe so. Are they still really, really good? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And the the point you make about Debo Samuel is interesting because I loved him in the pre-draft process of 2019, right? That's 2019, losing track mm-hmm. of time. But yeah. that my biggest hesitation with him was the injury. And he played so well last year, you know, avoided major injury bugs. And then this happened. And you never wish that on someone. But this is a pattern in his career. And so you don't wish that that continues for a player. Uh, but obviously, as you said, it's going to be hard for them to have the health that they had last year and continue that that good fortune. But obviously, San Francisco, a very, very good roster and a very good team who plays really well within their scheme. This is a perfect match of, of coaching and players and roster. I don't think this team got much worse this offseason. I think they made some hard financial decisions that resulted in guys like Buckner leaving town. Uh, but compensating by taking Javon Kinlaw in that first round, who has a chance to be as good of a player as Buckner, at least down the road probably, he will be cheaper. You know, if he can get there by the end of year one, he's going to be cheap for three or four years. Same thing with Sanders and Goodwin. These are big offensive pieces, but Brandon Ayuk could grow into a really nice replacement who is going to be cheaper, and that's what they need for this team to stay together. And then Trent Williams should allow them to continue on without much falloff from Joe Staley. At least that's their hope. And so I think this team stayed roughly the same as last year. No huge setback. No huge step forward. I think it may take several weeks for the offense to kind of gel again, especially if they do end up trading Mostert. Uh, But I I don't think that anyone should expect this team to finish outside the top three or four in the NFC this fall. I'm with Andrew. This is not a team that I think you look down the road and you can see. You see all the talent on this defense. You cannot expect this, this team to stay together in that piece for more than a couple of seasons. But right now, yeah, this is a team that's going to be tough to beat. And I think one that the Packers will probably see again in the playoffs if they're lucky to be there. Yeah, the one thing that I would say is there is some frequency of seeing the Super Bowl losing team not make the playoffs the next year. And I I, certainly wouldn't expect that of San Francisco, but I could go back in history over the last several seasons and say, I did not expect that team to miss the playoffs. Um, and so the 49ers are not immune to that. There's there's nothing um, about their roster that screams that they have to be good. Um, but certainly from a talent perspective, and that's the way that we're gauging these teams, we don't see a significant step back. That's a really interesting point, and that, that is true. Like We do see that, so it'll be really interesting to see if we do see that kind of a regression from this team, uh, because Jimmy Garoppolo is not, you know, I think he's an okay NFL quarterback, but he's not the guy who's going to put the whole team on his shoulders again. And a lot of times, that quarterback consistency, you can have movement around your roster, but if your quarterback is that 
that rock solid piece, you can know that there's going to be a floor to what your record's going to be or um, the play of your offense and those kinds of things. I don't know that you can say that about a Jimmy Garoppolo-led offense yet. I don't know if he's there yet. So it will be really interesting. And you have to remember, the 49ers were not a team heading into 2019 that everyone was like, yeah, this is you know a clear playoff favorite even. I mean, they, they kind of surprised people playing the way that they did. Obviously, their defense was a big part of that. But yeah, those are good good things. I think we're short-sighted sometimes and we only remember uh, what we've immediately seen in, in the past, but uh, we don't know what kind of team that this is going to be in 2020. So all good things to keep in mind. Yeah, and I mean, the Seahawks were a few feet away from beating them, winning the division, and then forcing San Francisco to go um, on the road in the first week of the playoffs, and who knows what happens in that case. Seattle's still going to be a really good team. We expect Arizona to take a major jump, so they're going to be in a fight for their division, for mm-hmm. sure. Absolutely. Um, so th- that'll be really interesting to watch. Uh, the Packers are going to be playing in, in Houston Sunday at noon in week six, and in week eight, they will be playing Thursday night at San Francisco on a short week after hosting the Vikings. Gross. Thanks, Brutal. schedule makers. Yeah. Really, really appreciate that. Um, but on that optimistic note, that's all the time that we have for today. This has been the Packer Day Podcast. You can find Kyle on Twitter at Packer underscore Pundit. And you can find me at Andrew Mertig. Remember to also follow at Packer Day Podcast. Please subscribe and rate the podcast if you like what we're doing. That really helps us out a lot. Um, you can catch Kyle and myself every Friday. We're going to be back next week with a review of the Jacksonville Jaguars and Indianapolis Colts offseason. Thanks for listening. And as always, remember... Oh, hey!